0: All right, well, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, let's go to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. And let's begin at verse 1. And then Jesus went out uh, departed from the temple, and His disciples came up to show Him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Surely I say to you, not one stone shall be left Upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceive you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. And will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. This week, of course, we saw Russia moving into the Ukraine. And many have questioned what does this all mean? Is there prophetic significance to these events? Coming out of the pandemic, which I believe we are coming out of the pandemic, many are insecure and unstable already from the events of the last two years. We don't know who to believe, we don't know who to trust. We have been lied to so often by so many that we now find ourselves in a bewilderment when we see the uh, scenes and the events unfold on our TV screen before us. And often when we come to such a place, we are in a state of vulnerability because we're, uh, we're not sure what to do, how to interpret what we see. What's really going on? Will we ever know? Can we ever know? I discovered that in my life, whenever I am confronted with a scenario such as this, there are two places that we can go to for clarity. Number one is to understand history. Because history often repeats itself, especially when we do not learn from it. But more importantly, it's the Word of God. Any true study of history must include the Word of God, because history is simply His story. As we see these things unfold, we are concerned because, again, coming out of the last two years, a worldwide pandemic that we still are not clear concerning its origins. We're still not clear that we were given the best scientific advice to combat it. Many are questioning the decisions of our leaders and of our scientists and so forth. And then all of a sudden, Russia moves into Ukraine, and COVID is finally displaced from the front pages of every newspaper in America to enter into a new crisis. I'm personally waiting for the murder hornets to come back. I'm waiting for their arrival again. So what is going on? Is there prophetic significance to the events that we see unfolding before us? And the answer is yes and no. Many have placed this verse that we are going to be looking at this morning on their social media feeds... And it's true in what they are saying, but let us understand what Jesus meant when he said it, to keep it in its proper context. Now, don't get me wrong, I certainly believe that we are closer to the return of Jesus Christ than ever before. But no one knows the day or the hour. But Jesus did tell us that we'll know the signs of the times. His disciples here ask him directly, what will be the sign of the end And of your coming. And this is the question that Jesus answers for us in Matthew chapter 24. But what is the context? How should it be applied? Those things we will look at today. This is the fifth discourse in the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew is written to establish that Jesus is King, their Messiah, And with his arrival, the inauguration, the beginning of the kingdom of God here on this earth has begun. Though it has not been established and placed, and will not do so until he returns a second time, the whole thrust of this book is to establish those two truths. So Matthew meticulously as the tax collector that he was shows us how Jesus fulfilled the various Old Testament prophecies concerning his identity as Messiah but also gave us clarity to those things spoken in the book of Zechariah concerning the day of the Lord and the establishment of the kingdom of God here on earth. And when it comes to the Olivet Discourse the Discourse is truly Jesus answering the question of his disciples there on the Mount of Olives, which would have been perfectly positioned to oversee the Temple mound and everything there. The disciples enamored with the the glory and the magnificence of the built temple that Herod had created there. Josephus tells us that you really hadn't seen beauty in life until you had seen the temple that Herod had had provided Jesus wasn't nearly as enamored with that temple because in and through all of his experience here on this earth in his first coming the Jewish people rejected him as Messiah and sure enough in seven don't you love it when you're 53 and your voice still cracks I'll get through puberty one day I promise isn't it amazing that they were enamored with this building, and yet the Messiah himself being rejected by the nation. And of course then Jesus predicts the dissembling of the temple in 70 AD by the Romans. And stating that the Jewish people will be scattered throughout all the earth. But let us not forget that the way Matthew constructs his letter, he immediately precedes this section, of course, in chapter 23, verses 37 through 39. In verse 37, Jesus clearly states that Jerusalem has rejected him as their Savior. When he says, Oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. I came to you. I fulfilled those prophecies that announced my arrival. I rode in on a donkey in the fashion of peace as a king coming to A city in peace, wanting and hoping and desiring that you would recognize and see me as the Messiah. They rejected him, and God fully knew that they were going to reject the coming Messiah in his first advent, his first coming. And he's weeping now, because they were unwilling. They could have, but they chose not to. They were unwilling So he begins and says, See, your house is left to you desolate. The Jewish people were absolutely enamored with the temple. Of course, since its recreation after the Babylonian captivity, and once again being regained after the assault of the Romans and uh, Anachus Epiphanes, who we've talked about in great length in our study in Daniel, with the Maccabeans bringing cleansing and purity back to the temple. Herod establishing it even further, the temple was gorgeous in its sight, laden with gold and white stone from a distance it would just glisten and would be seen for miles. And this was where God resided, and as long as the temple was there, God was with his people. But Jesus said, in your rejection of me, for I am God. This temple shall not stand, and it shall be desolate. In verse 39, he says, For I say to you, you shall see me no more, till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And this, of course, will occur at his second coming. And that is the preface up to what we now begin here in chapter 24. And then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, And his disciples came up and showed him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see that all these things I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down? And when the disciples, now the disciples, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? Question one. When will these things be? They are undoubtedly asking when the temple will be dismantled. When will this happen, Lord? When will this occur? Well, it's going to occur in 70 AD. But they follow this question with a second, and the second is a two-part question in the Greek construction. And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Remember when Jesus was about to ascend into heaven in Acts chapter 1, the disciples asked him again, Now will you establish your kingdom here on this earth? That was the drive that the disciples had. Remember that in the Gospels they argued about position within the the kingdom of God. Who would sit at Jesus' right hand, even including, uh, you know, know, asking mom to go and petition on their behalf. This was at the forefront of the center of the Jewish thinking, the establishment of the kingdom of God. So they see this as one and the same. Because in Zechariah 14, verses 1 and 2, The beginning articulation of the day of the Lord starts with the destruction of the temple. And they're thinking that the destruction in 70 AD is the same event that's going to take place in Zechariah 14, 1 and 2. But Zechariah 14, 1 and 2 describes an event that takes place at the end of days. So there are many facets of dimension to what is being asked here that we need to sift through to properly understand. But for the sake of time this morning, let me help you by by saying that I believe that both Matthew's gospel and Mark's gospel focus on the answer to the second question. Because that's truly the thrust of both. If you hold to a scholarly position called Mark and priority, believing that Mark was written first and that Luke and Matthew borrowed from Mark in their Gospels. It's a very uh, prominent idea. There's also the idea of the Q source that these Gospel writers borrowed from. It would show me that Mark, if it is, and I'm not 100% convinced of Mark in priority, meaning it was written first and then borrowed by others, It appears to me that both Mark and Matthew truly focus on the response to the second question more than the first. Luke, however, seems to write to Theophilus about the actual destruction of the temple there in Luke 21 and give Theophilus a little bit more background if Luke was written somewhere about 63, aren't you glad you had your coffee before you came today because there will be a test afterwards, 63 AD, that's seven years before the destruction of the temple, Uh, it's interesting that he offers the idea of the destruction of the temple in his writing, but I believe again, as I stated, that what Jesus truly concentrates on here is answering the second question in its two parts, Matthew focusing on this second question because of its pertinence to his overall theme of the entire gospel, Jesus being king and the establishment of the kingdom of God here on earth. So, that being said, let us continue by looking at how Jesus responds to this. And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. There are those good brothers and sisters in the Lord who believe that verses 4 through 14 are describing events before the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. I find difficulty with that for two different reasons. Number one, we do not have historical evidence that the things that unfold here in these ten verses occurred between the writing of the gospel and the destruction of the temple. We don't have sufficient evidence to support that in my conclusion. Secondly, twice here, Jesus talks about the end, the end, the end. Now, remember the second question that was asked of Jesus here in verse 3. And what will be the sign of your coming and the what of the age? End of the age. I believe, again, Jesus is directly answering the second question from this point forward but i do for the sake of honesty need to say that others look at this differently the second reason that i look at it in a futuristic sense is because it perfectly parallels in my opinion the the seals being broken in revelation chapter 6 which i'll demonstrate in just a moment the first four seals specifically But he begins with deception, that prior to his coming, we must be aware of the issue of deception. Paul made it clear to the Gentile believers in Thessalonica that two events will occur before the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Number one, there will be a great falling away, an apostasy. Individuals led away from Christ through deception. Number two, it will, you know, the rise of the Antichrist will occur. These two things must happen before the return of Jesus Christ. He specifically says that others will come in his name. I think John alludes to this when John says that the spirit of Antichrist is already at work in the world today but will culminate and climax with the coming of the Antichrist, which he perfectly articulates in his first epistle, that the Antichrist is coming, who will ultimately deceive the whole world. And we've talked about the Antichrist quite a bit in Daniel and in Thessalonica. So deception. We must be prepared for deception. We must be prepared to be able to withstand the waves of deception that take place. And you can see very quickly that if we believe that we are living in a time where we don't know who we can trust, and that we are consistently being lied to by so many, we already have an insecurity and a vulnerability that can be exploited, don't we? The only thing that will keep us grounded in this time is the Word of God, is understanding and knowing the Word of God. There is a wave blowing through the church right now concerning eschatology, the signs of the end times, the the study of the last days more specifically, And that wave is this, that we really can't know for sure what's going to happen before Jesus Christ actually comes. And so we can't be dogmatic and we can't, uh, you know, we can't be too rigid and we shouldn't be so concerned with what's happening around us in our current moment. And yet I find that Jesus contradicted every one of those statements over and over and over and over again. He rebuked the Pharisees for not recognizing the signs of his first coming, the 333 prophecies that he fulfilled. There are over 600 prophecies concerning his second coming that he has given us to know the signs of the time, that we can live with the idea of the imminent return of Jesus Christ and live accordingly. As John says, purifying ourselves in this hope hope of his return, living a godly life, living full on for him, keeping an eternal perspective rather than getting fixated on the temporal. All of this comes to play when we have an understanding that Jesus can return at any moment. And many dismiss the ideas that we put forward of the rise of an Antichrist and a one-world government And buying and selling, you know, with a mark on the hand or the forehead. And yet, the world continues to march in that direction each and every day. So I don't think we can just arbitrarily dismiss these things. As one Christian recently said, that our understanding of eschatology is pop culture Christianity. Really. The Bible has so much to say about these days. You know, wouldn't it be something if we actually had the technology to put a chip in someone's hand that contained all different kinds of information? Wouldn't that be amazing if that actually occurred? Wouldn't it be amazing if Russia showed aggression in the world as the Bible predicts? Wouldn't it be amazing if a group maybe out of Davos would say that the United States will no longer be the superpower of the world, but a collection of nations going forward will be the last superpower here on this earth? I think I read that somewhere. Now, I'm not saying that these are the exact fulfillments of the events of the Bible, but the ideas and concepts and uh, actions are all ready here. And would be easily exploited by one that we know to be the Antichrist. So let us not be deceived. And then he goes on and he says, in verse 6, And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, and see that you are not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet for nation will rise against nation kingdom against kingdom and there will be famines pestilence earthquakes in various places all of these are the beginning of sorrows labor pains birth pangs. Throughout the Old Testament, there are passages given to us, especially in Isaiah, which I'll look at in just a moment, that the prophets use the uh, labor pains of a woman to illustrate for the people the coming difficulties of the great day of the Lord. For example, in Isaiah 13.8, Isaiah writes, and they will be afraid. Pangs and sorrows will take hold of them. They will be in pain as a woman in childbirth. They will be amazed at one another. Their faces will be like flames. Read these chapters when you have a moment. Isaiah twenty-six seventeen again, uses the same illustration. As a woman with child is in pain and cries out in her pangs, when she draws near to the time of her delivery... So we have been in your sight, O Lord. So Jesus is simply using an expression that the Jewish people were already familiar with, found in the Old Testament. Now, <clears throat> we know that when labor pains start, they often start slowly and then they as the birth becomes closer and closer, they grow in In number and in intensity. And finally, you have the joy of the arrival of the child. The Bible says that's what the tribulation period will be like. Labor pains. They'll start out slow. Spaced apart. But as you get closer to the coming of Jesus Christ... They will become more intensive and more frequent until the return of the Lord. That's what he's saying here. So wars and rumors of wars, pestilence, famines, earthquakes, which can be a single earthquake, but we have literary examples of also speaking of natural disasters. These things will start, they will become more frequent, more intense, and finally conclude... With the return of Jesus Christ. That's what he is saying here. Now, we have had wars, pestilence, famines, earthquakes since Jesus ascended back to heaven, haven't we? The 20th century was one of the most violent centuries in human history. And the Lord still has not returned. This is where I believe the context of Revelation 6 should come into play. In Revelation chapter 6, the beginning of the breaking of the seals, the scroll in which Jesus is given and is is worthy of taking from the Father's hand, as he begins to break the seals in heaven, events occur here on this earth. Now, notice with me as we turn to Revelation chapter 6, the similarity of the first four seals and what Jesus had just told us. <clears throat> In verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 1 Now, when I, I saw when the lamb opened one of the seals and heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. The first seal, I believe, depicts the emergence of the Antichrist here on this earth. Notice with me that he parallels the second coming of Jesus Christ by being on a white horse. But in his hand, though he has a political power uh, given in the crown, he doesn't have a sword but a bow. And this would work exactly with what Paul had said about the necessity of the arrival of the Antichrist. This also would be in conjunction to what Jesus said, let no one deceive you, right? And he comes for the purpose of conquering and to conquer. Notice the second seal. When he opened the second seal, I heard a second living creature saying, come and see Another horse, fiery and red, went out, and it was granted to him, to the one who sat on it, to take peace from the earth, and that people should kill one another, and there was given to him a great sword. Wars and rumors of wars. Okay? The second that Jesus asked us to look for concerning the signs of his coming. Then he goes on in verse 5 the third seal. And when he opened the third seal, I heard a third living creature say, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a black horse. And he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hands. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil or the wine, famine, scarcity on the earth will take place at this time. Exactly what Jesus said would occur. And ultimately from the war and from the famine and so forth comes death. Number four, verse seven. And when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature come and see. So I looked and behold, a pale horse, and, on, uh, and the name on him who sat on it was Death, and Hades followed with him, and power was given to them over a fourth of the earth, to kill with the sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. I don't think it is a coincidence that Jesus simply put the description of the four horse of the apocalypse in the first section of his response to the disciples' question. I think the parallel is something we just can't randomly dismiss. So going back to my idea concerning the 10 verses that we are looking at, I believe that verses 4 through 14 is a panoramic look of the seven years of the tribulation. He's giving us the whole thing in one little synopsis. And so the wars and rumors of wars that he is speaking of are those wars and rumors of wars that occur after the arrival of the Antichrist. Now, saying that, I also want to be clear that though the labor pains that he speaks of occur, I believe, after the arrival of the Antichrist, it is for sure that the earth is pregnant, isn't it? Meaning we're getting closer. And what we see happening, the destabilization in our world is all leading to that point. We are getting closer and closer and closer with the instability in our world today to this moment. But I also want to encourage you here at this moment, because that which is currently restraining the rise of the Antichrist must be taken away before the Antichrist can rise to power. What is that restraint? I believe it is the Holy Spirit working through the church. And when we are removed in the rapture of the church, it will allow for the rise of the Antichrist to occur. He goes on to say, and let's continue reading if if we will. In verse 9, notice he says to them, Then they will deliver you. Now that word you doesn't just necessarily mean those who he's speaking to, but you as a people, the Jewish people, will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. And you will be hated by all nations. Notice that. Not just the Roman nation, all nations. And this is exactly what happens in the tribulation period. For my name's sake. And then many will be offended will betray one another and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. That's exactly what happens in the seven-year period. A false prophet precedes the Antichrist. And because of lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the what? The end shall be saved. What does he mean? Meaning, that there's a need of, um, I want to say perspiration. Uh, yeah, they're going to be sweating a lot in the tribulation period. But perseverance. Now the salvation that he's talking about here is not spiritual salvation. It's talking about coming through the tribulation period. For we know that Jews who do survive the tribulation period, here physically on the earth, will enter into the millennial kingdom after Jesus Christ returns. And then he says in verse 14, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. And then again, he says, the end will come. So again, I believe what he's doing is giving us a synopsis of those seven years. I discovered this week that in the Babylonian Talmud, Uh, rabbis were already anticipating a seven-year period of trouble before the coming of Messiah. And I'm exploring that more, and I'm going to use it in upcoming messages. There's this idea that seven years must occur, that 70th uh, 70th period of seven years that Daniel anticipated that is outlined for us in Revelation 6 through Revelation 19. And as God has now, Jesus himself has given us a bird's eye perspective. Let us think of these words in Zechariah 14, 2 through 4. It should be on the screen behind me. For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. That didn't happen in 70 AD, it was just Rome. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations. And he fights in the day of the battle. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which, is, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west making a very large valley. Half of the mountains shall move towards the north and half towards the south. That hasn't occurred yet. But it's going to be something when it does. Today we see the aggression of Russia continue to mount. I think we need to be concerned about it. Because there are consequences that could occur. The Bible talks about Russia in Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39. In the Bible, they're known as Magog. The territory to the north of Israel. And the Bible tells us clearly, tells us clearly that Magog will come against Israel in the last days with a group of other nations to conquer and to steal it of its, its spoil. The world will look in wonder, and then God responds by defeating Magog. And we'll look at that passage in the near future. But what about today? What is occurring before us today? Well, let's be honest. A narrative is being being put forward. But we have to ask ourselves, can we trust the narrative that we're being given? I remember a narrative concerning COVID, right? And how accurate did that actually become? So I don't want to create paranoia, but I do want you to be critically thinking these things through. And of course, the internet is going to be riddled with explanations of why Russia is doing what they're doing. The media will obviously call him a madman and he's coming against democracy and it's going to require the world to step up to resist. I have often now found that if we simply wait and allow time to pass, we will see what actually is transpiring. But there are some concerns. How it will affect our nation? Well, first and foremost, we know that it will affect us economically. Our president decided to cease the Keystone Pipeline and our energy independence, and we became again, once again, dependent on oil reserves around the world. Some estimate that the United States of America consumes 538,000 barrels of Russian oil per day. So economically, we can certainly be assured that we are going to feel the effects. Just on Friday, I already paid out here $4 a gallon for gas. The second concern I have is that if this spills over into NATO nations, once you pass Ukraine, you get into Poland and so forth, who are all NATO members, and if Article 5 is invoked, then it will require the United States to respond militarily. With our economics and the current situation that it is, just coming out of a pandemic and now getting into a confrontation of that size, that is a lot. Just something for you to consider. I'm also concerned that China will move against Taiwan. China already overflew Taiwan And again, if China chooses to invade Taiwan, we are bound by treaty to go to their assistance militarily and join them in the resistance of the Chinese government. I'm concerned that our current geopolitical position is inadvertently pushing Russia and China closer together. Now, history tells us that they are not national, uh, natural allies. They're not. They both serve their own interests very well. And often those interests conflict. But it does appear that their alliance and their agreements are starting to align more and more every single day. And of course, their target is the West, America and Europe. I'm also concerned that in the wake of all of this our attention from Iran will be diverted and in the process they will gain nuclear weapons. Because now we've seen that just yesterday I believe or Friday North Korea launched a missile into the Sea of Japan. But here's the problem. Why is this happening now? Well, Russia's been aggressive before. In 2008, under George Bush, they went into Georgia. That's it, Georgia right above Florida. <clears throat> In 2014, they went into Crimea, just south of the Ukraine. Then for four years, they didn't do anything. The individuals that I listen to who are much more educated than I am are greatly concerned that America appears weak at this moment. And in the wake of weakness, aggressors become more aggressive. Secretary of State under J.F. Kennedy was a man named Dean Rusk. And Dean Rusk said, at the beginning of the Cuban Missile Crisis, he stated that if they choose to appease an aggressive nation, appeasement only makes the aggressor more aggressive. Winston Churchill, in a speech that he gave in Parliament in 1937, when he, and he alone, was ringing the bell of warning of the rearmament of Germany, that Germany was contradicting every single one of the treaties uh, points that they had created. And even though Chamberlain came back and said, peace in our day, Hitler moved into the Sudetenland. And in 1939, September of 39, he moved into Poland, believing that it was sovereign territory of Germany. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? But in his speech... Winston Churchill said something that I think is very interesting. Because Britain wanted nothing to do with war after World War I. They wanted absolutely, it was devastating. World War I was horrific. And rightfully, you can see the people, they just wanted peace. As one of the prime ministers said, that the individuals born during the First World War were the individuals that were going to die in the Second. And so Britain began a period of disarmament. They began to wind down troops and weapons and so forth, hoping and thinking that they would never be needed again. But Churchill made an observation. This was before he was prime minister. He made an observation that Britain's weakness was dangerous to Europe. When we became the superpower in the early 1990s, after the fall of the Soviet Union it was clear that we were the last superpower on the earth. And with that came a responsibility. And we can debate imperialism, we can debate how we exercise that that power and so forth, but it filled the vacuum for the need of stability within the world. And if the world is looking at our current administration as weak, some have said incompetent. Are we hearing those words of Churchill again? This time, though, if Ameri- in America's weakness, it is dangerous to the world. Now, I'm not advocating for war. I think war is horrific. But I am advocating that now we are coming out of the pandemic... Now we have a new crisis on the horizon. We cannot take our foot off the gas and we need to continue to bring leadership into our country that understands the geopolitical climate that we are currently in. We no longer have the privilege of being concerned about wokeness. We no longer can be concerned about climate change. And again, you know where I stand on those positions we need right now to be able to once again occupy that position of strength and through strength obtaining peace. But for you and I who are Christians, we know that these are all precursors to what is to come next. And we know that the Lord's return is imminent for His church. And he told us things that were going to happen before they happened to prove that he was God and also to comfort our hearts in such a time as this. We have a huge responsibility now to get the gospel out to every and each and every individual that will listen to us in hopes that they come to saving faith in our Lord. Exciting times. Troubling times. But in the end, Nothing will displace Jesus from the throne.